Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host, and welcome to season two. In lieu of our traditional land acknowledgement, the What's Up With Docs team would like to take a moment and acknowledge the heavy and heartbreaking loss of 215 Indigenous children found at the Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia, Canada. The practice of stealing children and deculturating them is frankly one of the fundamental tenets of colonialism. When you steal a child, you steal a people's future. When I was living in Arizona, I visited the San Carlos Apache Indian Reservation. I was in the bookstore, which is also their museum, looking around when the phone rang. The manager picked up the phone and he spoke Apache. I was around 40 at the time and had the profound realization that this was the first time I was hearing a language spoken in person that was native to this land. When we were talking later, he told me that when kids his age were being routed up to be taken to the residential schools, his grandmother hid him. And this is the only reason why he was able to retain his language. These children who were stolen were beaten for speaking their language, and when they would come home, often could not communicate with their parents. Friend of the podcast, Timba Bebe of the European Film Market, posted some resources on this Facebook page on this subject. Number one, a link to the National Student Memorial Register was created to forever remember and honor the children who never returned home from residential schools. Two, there is a residential school crisis line. The phone number is one 866 925 4419. Again, that's 1 866 925 4419. And this line is for emotional support and crisis referrals. Number three, the Indian Residential School Survivor Society also has an emergency crisis line available with 24 7 counseling at 1 800 721 0066. Again, that's 1-800-721-0066. And the Indian Residential Schools Resolution Health Support Program has a website. You'll be able to find these phone numbers and web pages on our show's page. In this episode, I speak with UK-based artist and filmmaker Stephen Eastwood and producer Elham Shakirivar about their collaborative work on the film Island and how that work has shaped their thoughts on the exploration of death and dying in the time of COVID. We also chat about their current film and multi-screen installation, The Neurocultures Project, which not only centers on the neurodiverse experience, but is being co-created with autistic artists. Because Stephen, Elham, and the artists with whom they work center the diversity and complexity of the human experience, this week's song is Cactus from the London-based neurodiverse funk band, The Fish Police. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in March, 2021. Stephen, this is our first time like, officially meeting, so nice to, to meet you, and congratulations on your new baby. Thank you. Great to meet you too. Yeah. And Maud, who is now uh, one month old. And so whenever I think about Maud, I think about the 70s TV show with B. Arthur. Do you, do you remember uh, that? It, I don't know. This don't know are are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. It's a 70s TV show with B. Arthur. Yeah, she was in the Golden Girls. Oh, I uh, but that. yeah. Yeah. But there's a show called Maud. Uh, and she was kind of like this uh, women's live woman who, and 
who's in her 40s, like looking back at episodes now, she has like all this gray hair. I'm like, I didn't look like that when I was 40. Uh, but Maud was like a badass, you know, and told it like it was. And they had some really, it was a, one of the, those Norman Lear shows, you know, good times and everything. So yeah, I don't know. You can probably find some episodes on YouTube or something. Yeah, this Maud, our Maud is definitely a badass. Okay. <laughs> Elham, we met last mm -hmm. year, um, about a month after the pandemic happened, virtually um, via Sheffield, because I was taking meetings with um, filmmakers um, there. But um, you have a history um, with the members mm -hmm. of our podcast, because you worked with um, Rennell when Rennell went to Sheffield a few years ago and yeah. did uh, Here's What Really Happened. We, I talked mainly about uh, one specific film called Even When I Fall by Sky Neal and Kate McLaren, which tells the story of the first circus in Nepal, which was set up by a group of young people who had been trafficked into circuses in India and who had been rescued and set up their own circus in Nepal. And it was a film made over seven years. And so it felt like the kind of film where it's really helpful to share the narrative of how a film like that gets made because so many of us make films that take a very long time to take shape and it's not just a question of the financing it's a question of the story um, evolving in a certain way sometimes finding the right language um, but even when I fall it was very much a question of how to give agency and to think about how to center the stories of a group of young people who didn't share a language with the filmmakers but also weren't comfortable using the medium of language and so thinking about how the film could be a combination of observational and co-created circus. But it, it took a while to get to that place and it took a while to figure out the lines of communication to get there. So whilst on one hand you're figuring that out, you can't articulate it clearly to say financiers, potential supporters. And on the other hand, everybody always likes a very clear narrative. And, you know, there are many, many narratives that aren't clear cut and Trafficking, I think, is something that gets talked about a lot, but very much from one perspective, this perspective of um, the victim story. And we were very much telling, telling a story of survival. And that was the frame. The, the story kind of starts at the point of reconstruction and rebuilding. And those stories tend to get misunderstood, particularly when they're from countries, you know, far outside of um, you know, where the financing is generally coming from because it's convenient to many people to tell stories that other, it's easier. And, right. Um, and when you talk about stories, particularly around like, I want to say recovery and trauma, like in what ways are they misunderstood? Well, the narrative that kept, that kept coming up around even when I fall was that people needed to understand how bad the situation before was in order to understand the narrative of the young people that, that was going to unfold in the film. And I think, you know, as we were pitching, the, the thing that kept coming up was people saying, well, I don't really understand the difference between the previous circus and the new circus. And this always really, I mean, I find this very difficult. Yeah, that seems kind of obvious because they're, the previous, they did not have ownership in, in the current, they do, like, duh. Yes, Okay. exactly. <laughs> But I suppose this, this really highlights who it is that you're talking to. And, and this was also kind of pre-Me Too film. I think there wasn't really a kind of a widespread kind of mainstream conversation about the very different forms that abuse or modern day slavery can take. I don't know that the conversation has really shifted 
hugely from that place, but it was really a learning curve to see how difficult it was to tell a story that was about survival and not about victimhood. So to, to go back to Ranel was the, the idea of presenting and talking about how it worked to make that film as a producer was very much to draw both on those realities, the kind of realities of relying on landscape to tell a story as you're figuring it out and of working in, in, a circum, you know, in circumstances that are challenging for many different reasons, but also because you're working with trauma and you have a responsibility, um, but you also have limited resources and it, it's, that, it's a real juggle. And I think that's, that's something that I'm always really happy to share with fellow producers because there's no right answer in many of these situations. I think you need to think through what's best for the situation you're in, but also thinking about the team that you're working with and what everyone needs. And yeah, there, there isn't really anything like a code of ethics for filmmaking and certainly isn't, you know, in broadcast spaces, you know, there are, there are terms and, and legal procedures and frameworks that exist, but they exist for different reasons to the reasons that drive why we make films. Right. And so I think it's really important to have conversations around these kind of complexities, but also to not, to recognize that, that, you know, financing and filmmaking to some extent have to go hand in hand. Um, none of us were in a position to be making a film without being paid for the work of making the film. Like this, if this is our job, then it's a job. But, um, but we need to think about how to do that ethically and what the meaning of making that work is and how can we do it in a way that really centers agency and a kind of integrity that's shared across. Yeah, um, there have been a, a lot more um, discussions about that in the U.S., particularly um, when it comes to filmmakers from marginalized groups. That question of agency and authorship is something that really resonates. And there are a lot more filmmakers who are becoming more conscious of, we're kind, we kind of framed it here in the U.S. under the phrase on um, protagonist stewardship um, and making sure that you know, you're taking into account the needs of your protagonist, not only when you are in the process of filming, but also when that film is out there in the world. You know, they're, they're very different phases as well. I think when you start making a film, you maybe don't conceptualize that the film will be finished seven years down the line. And so many things that you could never have imagined are part of that narrative. So the landscape that the film is then released in is very different to the landscape that you were making in. Right. You know, protagonists might have grown up and changed and you know, their realities have shifted. And, and I think this, this is also why it's so important to, to sometimes take the time it needs, but also to think about all of these different things. But even with all of that thought, you can't necessarily predict what's going to happen with a film. And I think that's the very difficult space that we occupy as documentary filmmakers. So Stephen, I just wanted to ask, uh, just to get you into the conversation, like how did you and Elham meet? And how did you become filmmaking partners? Because um, just reading your bios, you are very much in sync as far as your concepts of filmmaking ethics, responsibility to your protagonist, but also ownership and authorship when it comes to the people that you're shooting? I think it was the summer of 2016. It was that Brexit summer. I remember because I was on the Isle of Wight shooting and the, when Brexit happened, I had um, done the, the majority of the shooting for the film that Elham and I made together, Island, and I had done an assembled cut and I needed somebody who would understand what, what the film could be and, and 
and could kind of join with me to sort of help realise that vision. So we were introduced around the time of Sheffield, I think it was, in that summer. And, and we looked at this four-hour working, cut, sort of very long assembled cut of what would become Ireland. And the conversation just kind of took off about, you know, the, how, how to handle and hold this, this film, which could so easily become lost. Oh, uh, and or, or, or could I mean it, it, Elvin talking about how the chaperoning of a film through all, all of its stages and in actual fact I think probably the most challenging stage of Ireland's life wasn't shooting mm -hmm. it was it was getting it to an audience so Ireland is a 90 minute uh, feature film it has a, a parallel project that's a gallery version called The Interval and the Instant and it was filmed over 12 months on an island off the south coast of, of the UK called the Isle of Wight. And it follows four really wonderful, remarkable people in the last year of their life. I filmed for a year and I worked very closely with the one hospice. There's only one hospice and one hospital on this island. And uh, worked with the community team, the home visiting team, the war teams to develop an ethical method for shooting. And the film was, was really about uh, being brave enough to have uh, images and descriptions and sort of shared, a shared seeing of how we die, what happens to our bodies and how we are cared for when we die. And uh, I think that was something that really governed the conversation that Elham and I had, which is to say that we can be brave with the kinds of images that we can bring to this space. And... Um, where perhaps cultural gatekeepers might uh, in, sort of instinctively say, well, there's no audience or this is going to be a hard sell. We didn't think that was the case and we, and we stuck to that belief. Yeah. So, yes, the film is about, um, it's about how we approach death. It's about letting go, changing relationships. But it's also, not only is it about palliative care, it's about... Uh, it's about this landscape, the passing of time, uh, and something which is, uh, after all, both inevitable and natural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're all going to go there. Um, I'm going to be 50 in May. Uh, which, like, it's... I just turned 50. Okay. Oh, well, I'll be joining the club soon. And it's a little weird, but I did get a little excited I was watching the old show ER on Hulu and there's an ad for AARP. AARP is like this really big retirement organization. And oh, but you could join where you're 50. So they were like, oh, join for $12 a month and you could get all these discounts. I'm like, oh, good. I get the discounts now. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> so I want you to talk about when you talk about coming up with the ethical framework, if you could get into some of the specifics of that, like what kind of discussions did you have with the folks at the hospice to kind of, well, first of all, ensure them that you were be, you would be creating a piece that was like, that was respectful and would honor the agency of the, of, of the folks that you were filming. But what were some of those conversations like? Because I think we, it's be really helpful for filmmakers to know, like, how do you go into those conversations? Slowly. And, and uh, I think in so many ways, the, the, I mean, you talk about seven, oh, we talked about seven year sort of life cycles for films. And I think that it, with films of this kind of ethical complexity, slowness is, is really the governing kind of energy. 
So it was about conducting the right, you know, a deep sense of research and understanding what the challenges that, that are faced by that community are. And one of the biggest challenges the hospice community faces in their work is visibility, mm. because very often hospices are kind of segregated. They're not, they're not really seen. Mm -hmm. And you only really come into contact with them when something life-changing is happening to you or your family. Right. And so, so uh, you know, it was finding organisations that, that I suppose there were resonances between the aims of the film and the aims of the institution and organisation. And for this remarkable hospice that we work with on the Isle of Wight, they very much saw the film as, as in keeping with their mission statement, mm -hmm. which is people should die in the way that they wish to die. Mm -hmm. And if somebody wishes to die by, by collaborating with a filmmaking team, mm -hmm. then that should be supported. Okay, so, yes. you know, that was, it's, it actually was not nearly as, as complicated as one might think mm -hmm. once, once those aims kind of combined. But then it was about thinking about introductions, and this is something that we've, we've talked about a lot, is how do you introduce the idea of a film? How do you establish the parameters of what that film could be? So it was, you know, don't introduce the camera straight away, you mm -hmm. know, acclimatize people to what a film might involve and involve them in in their own uh, representation mm -hmm. and and uh, when you see Ireland I think you can see that uh, everybody in the film had their own reason to be in it right so it's you know to come back to this idea of like the trap of victim sort of like the documentary sort of like extracting traumas mm -hmm. I think it was the, this film was very much about a sort of a process of self-selection where people had time to decide that they wanted to be in a film. I'm going to ask this because we are we are up on the one year anniversary of essentially our world lockdown um, with COVID. And do you, I mean, it may be hard to answer, but do you think um, Island um, maybe looked at differently in the light of the pandemic and the fact that there were so many folks died. I mean, here in the U.S., uh, we are well over the 500,000 mark. I think we're maybe at 560,000 people who have died of COVID. Um, so we have the highest death rate out there because, you know, we had an idiot in office. And so that's part of it. The reason why I'm asking this is just mm -hmm. because COVID really shifted in so many ways like our normal ways of dealing with death and dying like in radical you know in radical ways so we could not be in the hospital with loved ones like at their bedside but even funeral practices I mean having to have you know virtual funerals like things like that how do you envision the view of island like shifting in light of um, what's happened with COVID? I mean it's something we've actually we talked about a lot at the beginning of the pandemic because well, one, as Stephen said at, at the beginning, releasing the film was a big, it was almost like a whole other filmmaking process somehow. It was a whole other um, process of designing a narrative. I think it really brought us um, face to face with the huge taboo that death is. And we understood, we understood many interesting things. Um, you know, I think there were a lot of people in decision-making spaces that, that were reticent or reluctant to work with the film because it does also engage, you know, it engages quite directly with death. Um, there is a seven minute scene of, of Alan breathing until he doesn't breathe anymore. Mm. 
And this is something that, that I think without seeing the film, people kind of worry about. They freak out. Yeah, and, and the other thing is that they also worry about other people seeing the film. It's, it's not so much, which is interesting in this question of kind of the images that we are permitted to behold because, um, you know, there was a lot of decision-making about this not being appropriate or this being a kind of appropriate for a certain age, but not another age. And this was all very interesting to us at the time because I think, I mean, I brought up the Me Too movement. The very first festival screening that we had was around the time of the Weinstein kind of case breaking. And there were lots of very, you know, very difficult to read uh, graphic descriptions of rape and abuse in the papers. And yet we had made a film that was, you know, there, there was no violence in this film this is it's a film about pain managed death and yet we were being told that there was something that wasn't um appropriate for people to behold on screen and so you know these juxtapositions make you think a lot about what you know Stephen and I have talked a lot about the question of who has agency and who gives agency and and you know the agency of simply being uh of of someone who's dying is I think it's been managed in different ways over time. It's been managed in different ways by film or popular media or, you know, literature. And I think the, we're told to look away. Mm -hmm. I think what, where we were perhaps speaking the same language is that actually we wanted to look and behold that image. Having, I want to say the courage to not look away. There are people in the world who are comfortable um, with being uncomfortable and who are comfortable with facing some of the harder realities of, of life. And mm -hmm. they're folks who just want to avoid it completely. That can relate to things like being, like bearing witness to somebody's pain, you know, when they're telling like something like awful that happened to them or even things like death. And I've kind of been one of those people who's always been kind of comfortable with the uncomfortable. In my, my previous career, many, many careers ago, so don't ask, I worked as a licensed massage therapist. I don't, the only creatures who get massages in my home now are my cats. So unless you're, you know, a quadruped, don't ask. When I got out of school and got my license in addition like to working at like spas and stuff, I also did some volunteer work with hospice. For about a year and a half, it, it was hard. But in that work, the reason why the hospice I work with wanted people in hospice to get massages is because in so many ways, they are denied comforting touch. You know, they've been, they've been t being touched a lot, but a lot of times it's by doctors and they're being propped and, 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 you know, and prodded and things. So just, to, you know, allowing them some type of comforting touch. And I've worked with three patients over um, an 18 month period. One woman was in her thirties. So at the time, not much. Uh, older than me who had um who was dying of breast cancer and she had two children and um and then another an elderly an elderly um, woman who was in her 70s and then a woman who actually ended up living because she was in line for a liver transplant they actually it was a she's dying of cirrhosis was able to get a liver transplant but also in my so massage career i tended to work with a lot of habit of work with a lot of people who were dealing with like death or dying like they just kind of I don't know like mm -hmm. drawn to me drawn to each other 
and um, or people who are grieving mm -hmm. and you know the people they would disclose to me oh well my parent just passed away and I would tell them you know whatever you need to do and like sometimes they would end up crying on the table because they have an emotional release and I would just hand them a tissue and just kind of hold their hand but a lot of people can't be in that space the thing that struck us about Ireland, I think, because we were very fortunate to have a festivals run and then a, a theatrical release in the UK. Um, and we traveled with the film and we all, we're always very mindful of, of, of thinking about the audience. And uh, what really struck us was how the film, the experience of the film was, was nothing like the anticipation of the experience of the film. And so, um, most people, I think, the, if, if courage involved, it was just to, to sort of like get the ticket and sit down because most people found it, again, the film is about a slowing down and, and, and adjusting to a certain kind of space. And, uh, and it isn't necessarily as challenging or as harrowing as, pe as people feared. And in fact, you know, coming back to your COVID question, I think we realised that um, cinemas are incredible collective kind of communal spaces for, uh, for for sharing in things we find frightening and we don't have many spaces where we can I mean like religious uh, buildings are very good at those kinds of things because you can go and be with others and share in pain and grief or enjoy but actually in terms of secular spaces we don't have very many and we we realize that whenever the film screened, nobody left the audience when the credits rolled. And so we ended up booking out this sort of like hour slot afterwards just to, to stay in that space. And I think in terms of COVID, we have been talking about creating sort of some new kind of audience space for the film, perhaps a younger audience, because I think you're absolutely right that the gap, the pain that people are experiencing at the moment is of distanced bereavement and not, ha not knowing what was care like, what was the experience of my love, what my grandparent or my parent like, because I couldn't be there. And I think that uh, perhaps Ireland could have uh, a function. Sometimes the, the fear and the anticipation of the moment is greater than actually when the moment happens. So sometimes you have all this anxiety built up, like, oh my God, like, what is this going to be like? And like, oh, when it happens, like, oh, like that was challenging, but it wasn't that bad. Well, maybe one thing I, I just add and maybe take it back to what you were talking about, you know, the questions of age and care. And I, I think one of the reasons why we, we started to see and understand what an important space the cinema space was creating around islands. And, and actually some of the responses people were sending after seeing the film or, or wanting to see the film because they wanted to prepare for someone's death or the fact that they'd seen the film had helped them behold mm, someone's mm -hmm. death or be with someone. And, you know, we, we have incredibly moving responses to the film and it, it really underlines that having structures or kind of having some knowledge about this 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 thing that we will all have to engage with ourselves but will but do also all engage with in so many different ways throughout the course of our lives um having a space both to reflect about it but also a space to kind of behold and see those images is also a way of living a better life and kind of addressing you know fears and and this is what the the fact that it, it's so taboo to talk about death um 
but it's not taboo to talk about death. It's not, it's not taboo to talk about certain types of death. It's not, you know, conflict isn't taboo. You know, seeing kind of very violence isn't seemingly taboo. Right. There are certain mm -hmm. bodies that, you know, seemingly it's fine to see the deaths of certain bodies and not fine to see the deaths of other bodies. So I think it's also a very, um, it's, it's a space the media has a lot to answer for. And I, I think that's another reason why it's so important for it to be addressed mm -hmm. via a film somehow. Just maybe just to say something of, you know, the, the filming process that Stephen went through on the Isle of Wight, I think was also, and obviously he can speak to it more <laughs> than I'm speaking to it from a distance, but I think it's also a process of appreciating that both filmmaking is very much about time and death is very much about time. And one of the things that perhaps the film also teaches is that you can't really place a frame around death itself and I think the process of making the film even the very kind of basic filmmaking filmmaker process was a lot of waiting a lot of waiting a lot of waiting and during that waiting time Stephen was filming all of these other things on the island you know he was filming the owls and he was filming the coast and he knows the whole Isle of Wight better than I think most people on the Isle of Wight know the Isle of Wight but when we came to the edit that texture and that all of that waiting all of that time gave islands its pace as well and gave enough space and so the film you know and that you see alan's dead body very early in the film you we kind of like get over the the fact that there will be death in this film very very quickly so that you can just get over that fear and then slow down and the film very much in 90 minutes it does slow down and it kind of it takes you out of the rush of the life that you're used to and the kind of intensity of the taboo or the fear that you have and that you carry and it slows everything down so that by the time you sit with Alan as he's breathing his last breaths you can behold that image and and that's what the space of the storytelling space of the film can do that was beautifully um, stated and um, it brings two things to mind. Like I, when, um, when you talk about how Island made people um, better able to have conversations uh, about death, you know, the volunteer work I did for, for hospice was like so instrumental in helping me um, dialogue with my grandfather who was dying of diabetes. We had some very like honest, like conversations and, uh, I remember asking him, and, and I wouldn't have been able to have that conversations if it weren't for, for that experience, you know, so, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm, I might just add one thing, which is that um, in knowledge of the impact that it was having, and after seeing also the response that, um, and maybe Stephen, you can, would also like to talk about the response that some of the um, some of, so the hospice staff, the nurses and the doctors, but the nurses in particular who so often are, you know, their work is, is caring for others and they are not the people who are necessary, who are often in the frame um, or who don't place themselves center frame, let's say. Um, I think it was, there was something really magical about seeing them and their loved ones behold their image as they cared for others. And and that, that also um, made us realize how important the film could be for the medical space itself. And so um, 
after it had its cinema run, we worked with a palliative care doctor called Catherine Mannix, who's also a writer and has written a book called With the End in Mind, which is very much about enabling people to understand what end of life and death can mean, can look like, in order to prepare for better death as a way of living a better life. So Catherine wrote a toolkit that accompanies the film that can be used by nurses and doctors in training. And that's your work with how the film is being used with, by the National Health Service. Yeah, exactly. And so I think in knowledge that, you know, that's something that's been used in, in a number of different settings. And, you know, we started that work maybe a year before the pandemic. Mm. Suddenly, the relationship with death and the kind of prevalence and presence and is so very different. And so it's, I, I suppose if we were to do something else, it would build on that. But the, that initial work really underlines how much work there is to do in all spaces around death. I was really struck by, uh, I mean, you talk about the death count for the pandemic in the US, but actually, it's actually higher per capita in the UK than the US. Really? Okay. It, it is. And our Prime Minister said that the reason we're winning uh, winning, I think it was his word, the, the vaccine rollout is so successful was because of greed and capitalism. Those, those are his, his exact words. Mm. And the thing that struck me when uh, I received the first dose of the vaccine was the team of volunteers mm. mm -hmm. and how there is care and there is voluntary work happening in, in, every, in every corner of our society, but there is no no image given to it or not sufficient image given to how our societies are held together by care. Yes, yes. And yet we don't, we don't think that, that it warrants description. Well, if I can segue from that to make a little note and, and suggest that everybody read a book called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner by an amazing Swedish economist called Catherine Marsal. She explains that the father of the modern, you know, like modern capitalist economy, economy as it's understood, was a man, single man called Adam Smith, who lived his whole life, um, who never married, but who lived with his mother for his whole life. And she was the person who took care of him, who cooked for him, who cleaned his house, who ironed his clothes, who ensured that he had everything he needed so that he could work. So when Adam Smith worked out what has value. Adam Smith didn't even think about anything relating to care because he didn't need to because somebody was caring for him and he didn't conceptualize that that was work. And I think that underpins everything. And so the invisibility of care is something that goes back to how we think about work and what we value, what we place actual monetary value on. And only those things make sense. They're the only things that make sense in either of our economies, but most of the world's economies, you know, why is it that teachers, doctors, you know, people who work in service of others are the least paid. Yeah, our, what, we, that what we now call our essential workers. We have a name for it now. We have a, we have a word for it, but you know, somehow that word is, is the only thing that's been given. Mm -hmm. Not more money. <laughs> exactly, not, nothing more. Not, and even if it wasn't necessarily money, just the sense of a protection within this social structure, I think it all goes back to that initial understanding of the economy and, and where value is placed. It's interesting too, and this may seem like a complete tangent, but I promise it's not. So um, on YouTube, and you probably like, it's probably on your, your regular TV there, 
because this is a UK show, there's this, um, there's a series called Real History, like it's set and it's in Britain, but they have like different segments. So like part of the series is the things during a particular age, like for example, the Victoria age that would kill you in your home. You know, because apparently they like they love the little the the wallpapers, but they were making the wallpaper with arsenic, you know, and like people. Yeah. So right, right. but there's this other aspect of it that talks about essentially like the dirty jobs of like all these different times. So what what was it like for the cook in the kitchen who cooked the food for like Henry the Eighth, And what was it like for the guy who made the chain mail? There's this this, I don't know what is this human need or instinct to kind of like celebrate what's visible, what's larger than life. But what's we don't really know or like the histories of like the everyday folks who made, who are actually, whose work made those folks who are larger than life, larger than life. Yeah, this need for hierarchy. I think it comes, where does it come from? Yeah, where does it come from? Well, I'd say it, come, it comes from many people like Adam Smith. Wealth, patriarchy. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's that kind of dynamic. We, we could blame it on him? I think we can blame a lot on Adam Smith. I don't think okay. he's the only one, but I think um, <laughs> there are many people like Adam. But, you know, I blame it on every person who couldn't understand why the circus in, in India was bad and mm. the circus in Nepal. Yeah. The difference, you know, if you don't understand the difference of freedom, then actually, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what I have to, to, I can't, I don't know what I can say because that difference is so significant mm -hmm. that if I have to explain it, then it's not even a question of you standing in someone else's shoes. This is, this is not a question of empathy. It's something else. Yeah. Like there's, there's something cut off with you if you don't understand freedom. Yeah. So how to engage with that. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, so Stephen, I want to kind of um, jump to you in a bit and like talk about the work that you do in your bio. You use a different language of cinema. So I want to kind of like talk about some of the things that you discuss. So like, what do you mean when you use the, the word neurodiverse and how does that differ from the neurotypical? Like break it down for like, make it basic for us. Well, I, I think the binary isn't particularly helpful because I think it's tended to get misunderstood as there are neurotypical people and there are neurodiverse people. And I think that the neurodiversity movement is much more about recognizing that everybody has cognitive difference and that the assumed neurotypical and the cinema is a big player in how neurotypical ideas have been kind of forged. In fact, I think we're very interested in how you could think of the cinema as, as kind of training people into how to think about and look at bodies, to think about and look at social interactions as a kind of training into a kind of normative cul-de-sac. The neuro, neurodiverse movement is much more about celebrating our differences and, and rather than thinking about uh, deficits and cognitive absences to think about um, the benefits of different ways of thinking. And so it's become quite a political activist movement to say, well, it used to be that uh, somebody who identified as autistic or dyspraxic would 
be, uh, would be sort of assisted or, or guided to try to function in the neurotypical world. And this, is, this was the old wisdom of fixed behavior. Uh, and now the, 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 the paradigm is, no, is adapt environments rather than fixed behavior and recognize that uh, actually mo most people find f the fuzzy rules of our societies quite baffling. Yes. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and the cinema is, is corseted in many ways. It, it, the ways in which we think about how we, uh, we speak our world, we interview people and people are obliged to kind of speak their experience. The, uh, the ways in which bodies uh, sort of like hold themselves tense in relation to one another because of the laws of like shot and reverse shot and all these kinds of things. Well, let's expand the language of cinema as we expand our political ideas. So we've got to change the form as well as the content. When I was preparing for this interview, I think last year when we were supposed to talk, but you know, and then life, life, and then life, and then life happened. That was the first time I became aware of the term like neurodiverse in the movement. And now I've seen that term you being used more here in the U.S., but not just in cinema spaces. There was this discussion on Facebook. Someone wrote this amazing thread on Twitter that ended up on Facebook about WASP, so essentially white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and the ways the ways they communicate or don't. And it was like contrasting WASP speak with like with with real talk and how sometimes when you're engaging in real talk, that's, that's very, can be very threatening to WASP. And one person in the comments, because I've been kind of just interesting, like just reading all the comments of where this thread has been posted, talked about, described themselves as being neurodiverse and their frustration at dealing with like this, this, me this method of like non-engagement, but like uh, but circular engagement that's not really engaging. Um, I'm not sure what field they worked in, but that was, I was really interesting. Like, oh, like there's that term like popping up. And, but also what was fascinating about that discussion was that was the first time I had actually seen like wasp speak. Well, I'm going to call it wasp speak. Wasp speak defined. Whereas it's always the rest of us in our and those of us who are othered whose way of conversation is defined you know and so it, it really took that was speak out of the quote unquote like what is neurotypical like this is just another way of communicating i was just going to say there's something about um like the center and the margin and this question of like what is being displaced and i think so often and even in cinema i really like what you Stephen, the cinema is corseted. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Where did that come from? Never heard this expression. I, I like it. I've written it down. I'm going to come up. I'm going to use it again. This question of center and margin, I think if you stand in a marginal place in relation to the center, so often you've had to relate your, you know, your being in relation to that center. And I think so much of the discussions at the moment are about labeling and naming and whilst there are problems with that, I think there's also a real power in it because it's enabling, you know, the label to some extent does enable you to kind of stand in the center and to kind of displace the, well, in, there are lots of different movements happening at the same time. I think one of the things that we're, we're trying to do with neurocultures is to, it's not just about displacing the margin, it's also about displacing the center. So the center has to come to the margin, but equally the margin can stand in the center. So tell us about neurocultures. 
yeah, I suppose the the title. I mean, the title is really the title of the project. Uh, it's riffing on the neurodiversity movement, and the plural is deliberate because it's thinking about how we have to build many cultures when you're making a film. We've already talked about that. That there's the culture of of who is co-creating or collaborating. There's the the culture of who's appearing, there's a culture of, of, of watching. And I think every film is a kind of, is, is a possibility for a new growth. So, so, and we are definitely trying to, to, to sort of think about every aspect of how films come into being and get seen. So we have been, uh, I mean, it has been uh, affected by the pandemic, but perhaps not in quite as a destructive a way as you might think. Uh, so we're doing lots of work remotely at the moment, but we've been using, we had some in-person workshops and then some remote workshops and online activities to help us build uh, interest in the project. And that has led to us putting together a group of eight uh, uh, autistic identifying artists who are co-creating uh, and collaborating on putting a film on the screen. And uh, it's, I, I, I don't think we're at the point where we can really go into much detail about what that film will involve because it's we're in the kind of wonderful wildfire of that co-creation space. But uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that um, there's definitely uh, a shared understanding coming from within the collective that all too often what autism becomes, especially in documentary terms, but in fiction as well, is kind of in, in instructional to non-autistic audiences. As though the, the, the autistic individual, whether it's played by an actor or whether it's somebody showing their own life, has to demystify and explain or show what their autism is like to somebody that isn't autistic. And that isn't really what interests anybody here. The subject of the work isn't necessarily autism but rather a set of neuro neurodivergent artists are thinking about the ways in which the cinema has has let down their way of being and how it can expand to to think about different ways of being in the world i, I actually um just remembered that when El elham and i met uh, about the project it, you were part of the um alternative realities um, segment of Sheffield, which is uh, projects that are focused on like VR, AR-ish experiences. So can, um, I don't know if you had much time to develop that aspect of it because of Miss Rona, as I call her, but um, can you talk a little about um, what that VR experience might might be for folks? Uh, as we said earlier, when, when we made Island, uh, in actual fact, the same weekend the Ireland premiered at the London Film Festival, uh, a seven screen video installation opened called The Interval of the Instant, which then toured to, to other places in the world. And I think it's very interesting to think about how moving images and, and, and how they can give us kind of like progressive ideas and, and descriptions can, can work in different spaces. So we are developing a film, but we're also developing uh, a gallery artwork. And at the moment, that's working under the title of STEM cinema and stimming is something that, um, and STEM for, for the audience is, um, uh, not it's S T I M S T I M. Sorry for my sort of, um, flat 
Yeah, stem, so stemming uh, process of, of uh, movement, repetitive movement in either can be pleasurable or it can be an expression of frustration. And, uh, and this is something that lots of people in the autistic community uh, um, enjoy or use as a way of like, uh, you know, articulating or, or gesturing or moving and often feel as though a neurotypical environments feel uncomfortable about those movements. It would be those things like like those um, repetitive movements that sometimes we see some autistic people engage in that are looked at as I want to use the word pathological in that like I as part of a diagnosis is a symptom of versus something that people just like naturally do to as part of their identity and how they just the way it's self soothing like the way somebody may somebody like me uh, may um, eat. <laughs> in a way. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to simplify that much, but yeah, help to kind of clarify that. Well, but again, uh, I think that sometimes these kinds of distinctions break down as you, as you enjoy exploring them, because of course there are many environments in which anybody can enjoy re repetitive movement. Dancing is one of them. Uh, and so, uh, and one of the things we've been talking about is how uh, pleasure and repetition is at the origins of the moving image, uh, because the earliest moving images were zoetropes, which were drawings within a drum that you would see somebody jumping over a hurdle, and there's a pleasure in re-watching the same event. And so what we are, what we're thinking about is uh, sort of pleasure and looping and spinning, uh, uh, as a way of taking some of the sequences from the feature film and locating them in the gallery and thinking about a delight in imbalance or tilting and in rocking and, and uh, or, or just uh, delighting in certain kinds of areas of the frame that tend to be overlooked. So for example, I'm looking at you two now and I'm looking at your faces and, and I'm training myself on your faces. and. I, I, I could take interest in your background and both of you have got lots of stuff going on in the background and so have I. And yet we tend to think that cinema is about looking at faces and looking at faces, looking at other faces. But in actual fact, backgrounds are populated with rich like, detail and that we can, we can uh, highlight those, extract those and, and think about what's happening. So that's something you can do in the gallery. And we're actually like we're taking that we're taking all of that in, but a lot of it may be on on the subconscious level in a, in a way. But also, I mean, also when you talk about background, it also makes me think about like in film and and sound design and how um, uh, I don't know if people, with those of you who are maybe not filmmakers in our audience, um, like when you uh, when you're watching a film kind of like in its raw stage. Um, without the, the sound design, it sounds one way, but sound actually just, it brings it all to a whole other level that those of uh, people who aren't filmmakers maybe aren't conscious of, but they are like taking in that e experience. Oh, I was watching Blade, um, you know, the Wesley Sites movie. Like, yeah, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite films. And like, I was listening, and I've seen it a million times. There's this place where Karen, the scientist, is looking through the microscope and you can see the bike biconcave blood cells and um they actually added like a little rushing sound to it as the blood cells are and like oh i never like realized that before because i've seen it i've seen it a million times but you know it's this subconscious thing that now has become conscious because i watch it but you know you hear that and it just enhances the experience 
it's interesting the way that you talk about that because I think it also speaks to how it just like with Island and Interval neurocultures and sim cinema is also ways of you know the the way that you engage with an image differs whether you're able to move around that space or whether you're kind of sitting in a fixed way and I think with Island and, and Interval what we really observed that was so interesting was that Island is a 90 minute film you sit down and you watch the whole thing through and it you're kind of it's been edited in a certain way to kind of manage your journey through the film and through what you're going to behold and and your experience in a way but the interval and the instant was gave you the ability to move through space and, and make decisions yourself about where you went into came out of how long you spent with something and and I think when we're thinking about questions of say understanding um, or like permission or being in space it is really interesting to also think about the difference between an image that you can move around and an image that you're going to One of the things that's with. interesting is that the earliest um, moving images were like these Lumiere Brothers films of like workers leaving a factory. Um, what I think I didn't understand until quite recently was that the common viewing practices of those clips were you could you would go back and watch them 10, 20, 30 times. And you'd go back with your friend or whoever and you'd say, Oh, this time, let's have a look at the bridge or this time, oh, let's have a wow. look at that. And you'd keep re-seeing, but look yes. around the image. Before the it image. got taken up as a story medium, it was about enjoying looking around. Mm, interesting. Okay, I had no idea. Wow. So it's almost like that you're freezing time yeah. and in freezing time, you can look at all of these different elements yeah. of it. It's also very interesting because so many of those images, those early images were things in movement that people also had a very visceral response to because it was, you know, capturing those, there were repetitive things, there were things in movement, but so it was also spoke very much to the question of kind of your own relationship to it in a way yeah. and kind of your movement in relation to it so see i i watched those films for the first time a few years ago when i was getting my master's in visual anthropology and now i'm like okay i need to go back and revisit those because i had no idea that they were meant to be like watched over and over over again because they were short you know yeah they were short right and mm -hmm. also interestingly going back to what Elvin said earlier there were very often images of labor Images of work. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. no. mm -hmm. Images of what isn't seen, I guess. Yeah. You know, going back to the question of what has visibility and what hasn't, it, there's recently been some interesting reflection on, on the kind of, you know, the origins of our documentary form and, and that we need to also, you know, the, the reckoning with that origin is also something that feeds into the some of the problematic yes. aspects of documentary filmmaking and giving visibility to something invisible you know that there's lots of ethical questions that come along with that and if that was the beginning you know it, it's something that's basically been built on but maybe we finally should start asking questions about why that is yeah i'm, I'm very well aware aware that as a student of anthropology <laughs> um mm -hmm. but also in um the article that Nally bullock brown and um sonia childress wrote the reckoning they really go into that that history you know and starting with you know nanook of the north and um yeah absolutely and all of that yeah i teach and i used to teach a lot of visual anthropology and my students were always really shocked that nanook was you know staged in in many 
in many of its themes. And it, it, they, I remember one year, actually, the students were furious that I hadn't told them this before we watched it. And there are always really interesting conversations we have around it. But it is really interesting to me that within the wider documentary space, I think there isn't more conversation about that and about the relationship around construction, I guess, and how, you know, in any case, you know, it feels very obvious to some extent, but I think we are quite far away from these, I suppose, more in-depth conversations about truth and reality and, you know, how placing a camera in one, one space is making a choice. And there is an, an mm -hmm. inevitable, obvious erasure in any case, in any filmmaking process. Because yes, because you, you're bringing your, your, exactly, because you're, and also you're, bring, you're bringing yourself as a, you know, as you influence, mm -hmm. you, you influence. There's, there's no such thing as objectivity, no, in that case, yeah. Um, so Stephen, I want to kind of go back to one of um, your points when you were talking about um, the co-creation, the neurocultures project. And so what are some aspects of that process when you're working with our autistic identifying teammates? Like, so what is part of that process of like, co-creating? What does that look like? We ran some workshops uh, early on. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's interesting to talk about sound design because some of the things we did in our workshop, we took some films and we took the 7.1 sound mix and we stripped out all those stems and we had mm -hmm. people start to, to remix the, the sound environments of films to their own desire. So, for example, we did it with um, Mad Max, with uh, like some, some Mad Max Fury Road with uh, the, the Wonder Woman film. We did it with a Robert Altman film. Uh, a, a range of different films where you can, and this is really trying to build on, riff on and extend the concept of autism friendly film screenings, which tend to be to recognize that a lot of spectacle cinema is very loud and overwhelming. And so often autism friendly screenings, uh, the volume is lower and the lights are up and people are free to move around the cinema. And again, this is about our bodies and, and sort of like loosening up that transaction. But what, we were, what the workshop was also intended to do was precisely as, you, as you'd said, is to kind of break down, deconstruct, demystify the power operations that cinema works within, which is to say, when you look at a microscopic image and there's a sound of water flowing, it's designed to make you look with intent, even though microscopic <laughs> like things can't make sounds. So that, you know, but it's about controlling seeing. And so when you strip back those sounds, so we've done lots of those kinds of very performative interactive workshops. Uh, and I think that's because the, one of the key objectives of the project is to think about the cinema and to, and to think about what the cinema is and how it can change. And so that led to uh, people becoming familiar with the project through, through those processes. And then there have been some in-person with social distance and masks sort of meetings with some of, we're working with a charity uh, in the UK called Project Artworks. And they, they have art studios and they work with neurodiverse artists to facilitate their arts practices. So we've been working with some people through them. And, but most of it has been Zoom and now our new kind of favorite thing, which is a visual collaboration platform called Mural. Because it's visual rather than textual, so we've, we've created visual bios for everybody. We've got, we've got a visualization of the project structure in terms of the workflow of the film. And we've got a mural visualization of how different people can bring their ideas together. 
Right. But, but it's still, it's remote. Uh, and then within that, I mean, we have, um, we have mechanisms for support. We have an advisory group. We've got good guidance. Uh, and, and we're constantly trying to, we're recognizing that co-creation and what well, all filmmaking is really learning as you proceed. It's, all, it's always a new reality with a new set of challenges. You can't really take the roadmap from the last film with you into the new one. You have to start again. And so, and so, and within this uh, space, there are different communication preferences. There are different collaborative preferences. Some people, I, I would say, uh, are very, would, would say that their arts practice is mono-focused and they prefer to just work on what they're working on. Others are more group oriented mm -hmm. and it's just constantly managing those different levels of investment different levels of expectation um so yeah 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 it's it, as, as we said earlier it's, it's growing the 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 structure the culture as we go along and are all these folks like um working artists i well working in very different arts even arts and and positions in relation to the arts i think in, in a sense, it's a group that's come together through expressions of interest in the workshops, which were completely open. People could just come along or take part in. So there were, were a number of workshops that were run. Um, one was this Green Dynamics workshop, Stephen described the audio, um, but there were a couple of other stations, things that you could do to basically put the cinema in under the microscope, as it were. Um, but there was also, you know, there were other things. There was a, a kind of an online um, workshop which was about representations of autism that was completely open for people to contribute to and, and reflect on the ways that autism has been reflected through cinema. That is where the group kind of took shape from and it kind of has evolved from there. I'm interested in what are some of the critiques that autistic identified folks have about autistic depictions in cinema? One of the, the aims of the project in a sense I think we're, we're at very early stages and that's why it's still Stephen and I who are kind of talking about it. But actually, you know, this is also a space to the ideal kind of outcome of this is that a group of people find what it is that they want to do within the film space or find collaborators that they can go on to make their work that's meaningful to them or kind of become more involved in, in the space of cinema to actually in kind of from the inside ensure that representations become more kind of expansive actually, because I think one of the problems with representation generally is that there's often a kind of, there are these stereotypes that kind of replicate. Once there's a very strong image of one thing, that seems to be the thing that's kind of repeated over and over again. One of the things that I'd add, I suppose, is I don't think that there is one representation of autism. I think that, you know, there not one person can be representative of, of all autistic people. And I think this is really important to also remember. And But I think that's the same for kind of so many people who sit within a space of being marginalized by a center that feels the need to mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. identify them through the kind of prism of their difference I guess that's one of the reasons why this is such a kind of I think the work of this film is very much in the leading up to the making because there is so much discussion and kind of reflexive space and learning and readjusting and I think that that will be the the beauty of it the step in a direction of trying to 
have made a film um, that thinks about agency in a slightly different way, perhaps? Uh, I think there is a there's a parallel between the, the island and this project in in terms of like lazy sort of representations that exist. And so, like in in the research that was done before Ireland, it's particularly in fiction films. We thought about how the dying person really is only there to transform the person that survives them. It's the, it's the well-living person that is changed by the dying person. Similarly, in cultural representations of autistic characters, it, our focus is on Tom It's Cruise. not on Dustin Hoffman. It's not exactly. on Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. It's on, it's on the, the, the change of heart and mind and character of the non-autistic person. And it, the autistic character is merely uh, a catalyzing agent for the change of the... So I think, again, that's something that comes up a lot in these mis misrepresentations. The autistic community is, is made up of individuals who all have their own opinions about how representations are formed. And we have lots of conversations about good and bad representations, and there's never agreement. So it's not, it's not about unifying and homogenizing those right, perspectives right. at all. Um, so I just want to say for the for the young people, which makes me sound so old, um, the Dustin Hoffman Tom Cruise reference is um, to the film um, a reference to the film Rain Man. So I know some of many of y'all are probably born after that, which is like seems impossible to me. That that, that film still, I mean, I think it was made in '88. In my mind, 10 years ago. Definitely feels like 10 years ago, but still so powerful. It's still one of the major references and for many people, isn't it? And it splits the autistic community because many people think that it was that film that got the debate happening. When I saw that film in 88, when I was in high school, um, that's my first awareness of like autistic folks. Like I had never, well, at least to my knowledge at that point, I'd never known anybody who was autistic. But it still pervades as a cultural stereotype that autism means savant, genius and brilliance and the capacity to retain, you know, like the, the square roots of numbers and all these kinds of things, which actually for the everyday experience of, of somebody who identifies as autistic is they're no more likely to have that savant ability than anybody else within the population. So I think too often people go to these stereotypes and they become kind of like folk myths. So the work that y'all are doing is shattering those myths or shattering, shattering those stereotypical depictions. Well, I hope so, a little bit. And just making uh, an opening, an aperture within what documentary is or what cinema is to think, of, to think much more progressively about, you know, what do we want to put on the screen? How do, what do we think about the, the kind of training we've been given to think about the cinema is always about faces talking to each other. Of course, that often has a value, but to think through different perspectives to a, a more uh, emancipated space, I guess. I think it's really interesting to think about films like Rain Man, for example, and the idea, you know, the way that you're meant to identify is always the same character within those films. So much of cinema is about this kind of identification process. And I think this is where storytelling can be is so much more storytelling is so much more it's not about you shouldn't it's not because you you relate to someone that you should appreciate their perspective right it's not because you understand exactly what they're going through or you can stand in their shoes that's not the purpose of this form that's not what perspective is and I think that's kind of what we really desperately need to do better work around as filmmakers because 
you know, we like, why is it that we've had such problematic governments successively in the US, in the UK? It comes down to a question of representation. It comes down to what we think matters. And, you know, I, th I think all of these things are intertwined. Like, why is it that we always have to identify with Tom Cruise in the center of the frame? This is, this is a problem. You know, why are we not, why should we only care about things that we identify with? This, yes, this makes no sense. it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, but also it makes for an incredibly um, small world. You know, and boring. And world. boring, yeah. Right. You don't learn so much more yes. if Flat. you looked at things from, you know, be jarred by something. Don't if you miss if you don't understand something and have to think a little bit outside of your usual frames of reference, if there's a word that doesn't make sense to you and you have to go and look it up, or if you kind of, you know. It's like wearing a new pair of glasses that suddenly you see the world as different, you know, with suddenly there are blossoms on the trees that were never there before. This is literally what storytelling can be. And I feel like that's also what, you know, this is also where this film sits in a sense, you know, it's not as much about necessarily um, understanding because you feel that you necessarily relate, but I think it's also about, you know, the breadth of storytelling and how, you know, we've, we've enabled this disservice to ourselves of only looking at the world through a very neurotypical frame, let's say. And this is also where the fun of putting the cinema into a workshop and kind of ripping everything up and changing sound levels is, is also a question of just being able to think differently about all of those things and kind of playing around with them and, and maybe realizing that actually you really hate music in films and why has it become a norm that we have things dictating how we should feel or that you really love the sound of engines and actually that scene makes so much more sense if if it's pitched completely different when you talk about like why must there be sound in film i remember there's this um episode i think one of the best episodes of tv ever of buffy the vampire slayer and it's an episode where her mother dies and there is no music, no background. It's just all the actors. And like, you just have to sit with the, um, with the reality of like this beloved character um, who's passed away and how that impacts all the people around. And there's, and I, and I remember when I first saw that episode, I became, I was like, oh, like how much, it's interesting because the gift of that episode was that it allowed us to kind of have our own emotions because so much, so many times music gives us those emotional cues that, okay, you're supposed to be a little sad here. You know, you're supposed to be happy here. And like that is just, it, it left the audience with their own feelings. And then- right. um, It's like no hand-holding. Yeah, exactly. Like by being adult. Letting go of your hand, but kind of making you realize that it's okay as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Um, and then Mad Max Fury Road, I remember when I saw that and I felt like I needed to take a nerve pill afterwards because it was like constantly going and going. And I was like, I was exhausted <laughs> after watching it. And, and I was thinking, you know, it, that definitely could have been quieter, you know, and, and I don't think I'm on the spectrum at all as far as autism. Um, but then also um, one thing that you kind of brought up, Stephen, in regards to like differences and um, I'm a Trekkie, love me some Star Trek. Yeah, die hard. Um, but my favorite Gene Roddenberry quote, and I'm probably gonna like misquote it, but he talks about how we must learn to um, delight in our small differences. 
Yes, and our, our awkwardness and our hesitancy and our not knowing, you know, the, these are essentially human states. You know, it doesn't matter what, where you identify on a spectrum or even if there is a spectrum. But I think that the cinema doesn't let, doesn't, well, I mean, it's, it's dangerous to generalize, but lots of forms of describing the, the human subject tend to sort of confine and say everything is intentional, everything is readable, everything is inferable. And, uh, and I think there's so much more in, the, in those small differences that we can delight in. And, you know, as Alvin says, that, that actually sometimes to that management of, of, of the experience, even though it can feel like, okay, the labor is being done somewhere else, it can be exhausting. And suddenly you strip it all back and you think, oh, I've got some, I've got to do some work here, but I'm enjoying the gentle labor. It makes me think of Toni Morrison, who, who talks about her writing as, as you need to work with, like it's, it's, it's not meant to be easy for you. And that's also, I think we can expect more of filmmaking, but I think audiences are also really prepared for that. Mm -hmm. I think we underestimate audiences all the time. I think we're hungry for um, it. Some of us are really absolutely. hungry for it. I remember, I mean, with Islands, we obviously talked about how, I mean, audiences just would not leave the cinema. It was very simple. People would not leave at the end of the film. But I remember successive screenings of even when I fall, people just thanking us for making a film that was complex. And this was the word that people would use all the time. They'd say, you know, and it's not a film that ends in, in a kind of particularly happy way. There's not, there's no kind of Disney narrative to this. It's not mm -hmm. like everything's resolved. But I think what people really appreciated was the, the kind of being in between and, and not, it's not as bad as it was. It's not as good as it could be, but it's, it's on a, it's on its way somewhere. Yeah. And that's perhaps, that's perhaps most reflective of life as it actually is. Okay. Y yes. But the space yeah. of confusion, I think is the space that I'm seeing more and more filmmakers or films that are embracing that space and I'm really grateful for them. Since we talked about Island so much, um, is there some place where folks here in the US can see Island? Yeah, Island's available um, on Vimeo. Um, it's on the Hakawati Vimeo page, but if you Google it, it should come up. Um, and also if it's of interest for anyone, the toolkit to work with Island is also available on the film website. You can. You can, um, yeah, it's www.island.co.uk. Island film, sorry. I, I can't help but think back to the last, was it the last Oscar winner? Who, who you know, um, Bong Joon-ho, who suggested that, you know, if you overcome an inch of subtitle, there's a world of cinema that's out there for you. And I really, I really love that quote because actually I think subtitles are an incredible thing. They're like a gateway into another world. If you don't speak a language, it's a way that you can access something. And I think so much of cinema, we should, you know, as filmmakers, as makers of cinema, as viewers of cinema, we can think about it in all of those ways that sometimes it's about finding the translation tool to enter a space. And, and that's what I hope, I guess, for our storytelling space going forwards to see more of um, and I think there's real magic in that and just like to uphold the space of translation I guess. I think my without wishing to be too arch I think my last words would be to not have any last words because I think that, that I think that the word and the word coming out of the mouth isn't necessarily all, all that we can do to kind of articulate 
this wonderful, confusing thing it is to be alive. So um, I, I think let's get let, let's do more with our bodies and let's do more with our environments and less with our words. Stephen and Elham provide a roadmap on how to use cinema to show the beauty and the complexity of what can be some of the most difficult and challenging aspects of living the human experience. They also show us how, when you're making a film, you're culture building, and this should not be taken lightly. As Stephen says, our societies are held together with care, which begs the question, how can the documentary industry begin to internalize this care? Self-care, care crew, care staff, and care protagonists. Rather than adopting an Adam Smith-inspired and visualizing hierarchical model of filmmaking, what are the specific ways you can foster freedom? And those who are gatekeepers in the industry, are you willing to do what it takes to ensure that the organizations you fund and the projects they choose to support aren't extractive, paternalistic, and aren't harmful to the communities and people being filmed? This is just some food for thought. Thank you so much for listening today. In our next episode, we're back to the U.S., where we speak with coordinating producer at American Documentary and America Refrained, Robert Chang. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcasts. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling you stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast.